law enforcement, I've always been kind of the the Christian guy that is weird because cops don't aren't faith based for the most part. And so you get a lot of teasing through through your career if you try to be a faith based guy in a in a faithless society, as some of you know in your career. Uh, and I just kind of was known as being a weird guy because I was I was calm in the midst of chaos. And that's really where my, my faith had evolved. And the other thing that made me weird in my career is that I fell in love with people as a cop, even more so than when I was a pastor. And I, I, that sounds very odd to hear, but I started my career, I started my work career as a pastor, thinking I was going to be a pastor. I think I mentioned that to you last time I was here. And it was really the, the idea that there's things going on out there that I'm, I'm not privileged to, and I want to I want to get out there. You know, be careful what you wish for, uh, because sometimes seeing seeing the unseen is a is a horrible thing to see. And I do think that it, it requires a hard level of faith to be able to do this career. And I thank God for that faith foundation that He's given me. My passion is Christ, far more than law enforcement. I'm far more comfortable talking about Christ and and, and Him crucified than I am talking about my job. Uh, my 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 wife, God bless her for the trillion sacrifices that she has made through this journey. Uh, I've gotten to the point where I don't even really want to talk to her much about my day because it, it sounds so boring. Uh, what'd you do today, Jim? Oh, well, there's a homicide. And so we went out and found him and we watched him, took photos of him and followed him everywhere he went and put a tracking device on his car and, and uh, watched him meet up with the other person that was involved in the homicide and we watched them carrying guns and where they were placing them on their bodies and at the end of the day we called in our SWAT team and we arrested them. We say that every single day for years and I just got to the point where I'm telling my wife these stories and I can see her eyes glossing over and I've heard these and how good it is when you can get be engaged at that level of law enforcement every day and to her it's like eh. Just get home safe, that's all I care. And I think that's been a blessing to me is because she's she's handled so much more than I've I've handled. The day I got shot, she was just concerned shot at, sorry. The day I got shot at, she was just concerned that I wasn't gonna make it home for dinner. Uh, and I think that, that that's a good sign for, for a wonderful wife in law enforcement when when I make that phone call and I say, Hey, I'm tied up, some guy shot at me, bolt went right over my head, and da 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 she said, So you're not gonna go home for dinner? All right, we're in good shape. That was so long ago. So our career has been like that. Uh, Dave, Dave introduced. Thank you for that introduction, uh, Dave. I want you to know that I'm not I'm not covering for Dave. I'm not a guest speaker anymore. I don't have that mindset. I'm part of this church, and this is this is where we are committed. So that doesn't make me a guest speaker. I'll tell you why I'm standing here. Because in my times with Dave and talking to him and hearing his heart. Dave does not want to be a pastor who is responsible for doing everything that the church needs done. And so Dave has been praying for a long time that the Lord would bring people into his path that could share in the work of the church. And as we've come together and we've talked and we prayed together, we're starting to realize that, that the Lord is, is in a a season with Dave and Dave's life, and Dave, in my opinion, is responding very well to that, and that is why uh, it's easy for me to be 
committed to this cause. And that's the only way I can explain kind of why I'm here or what I'm doing. We wanted to be part of a church that that was right about where Life Path is right now. This is where this is what we want to be doing. I see the church kind of as a field. The field is Christ's. He's out of town. He's gone. He's away. But he has these workers, and so the workers do the work that he has called the church to do. And the the field is basically the the church. And the church has seasons. There's a preparation season, the time for plowing and weeding, and there's a there's a planting season, the time for organizing and aligning and providing the seed. And there's a season for uh, for maturing and growth, uh, where you're just caring and feeding uh, feeding the people and protecting them. And there's also a harvesting season. Uh, when I my passion. In my in my my personal passion is that the harvest season is not how many believers come into the path of the church. My belief that is that the harvest season is how many workers are prepared to work the field, and that is a very important distinction because I don't think it's, it's important to count how many people say yes to Christ if they never engage themselves in the work of the church. I believe right now uh, life path is in a preparation phase. And I think that God allows the churches, church to go through these phases where sometimes there's a, there's a step backwards in order to prepare for what's coming next. And in this time, the field gets worked, uh, it gets inspected, it gets reviewed, it gets cared for, it, you align the workers so that the work can be done. And I believe right now in Life Path, we're going through a phase. And as, as we look toward a, a building up at 83rd Avenue, 83rd Avenue and Happy Valley, which is right in our neighborhood, uh, I believe that we're going to we're going to probably by that time be transitioning into more of a planting season where we're actually uh, we start to understand why God has brought us to that location and the ministry that's ahead, and it's it's only then that we'll begin to see the uh, maturing uh, phase. Um, that being said. Dave, thank you for the introduction of what we talked about last time. What does a uh, mature church look like? And I know that when you hear the topic, well, what does an immature church look like? There's There may be some fears that, that uh, I might say something offensive or gruff uh, or that might hurt your feelings or be insulting. Yeah, that's, there's a good chance that might happen. But on the other hand, that's not my intent. Uh, think about the churches that you've been to. Think about the churches that you know. Think about the churches that you've committed to. They all have personalities. They're all somewhere. Just in your mind, think of three. Three churches maybe that you've been to in your lifetime. And think about the personality of each church. And you realize that in a very short amount of words, you can describe just about every church you've been to. Or this church was very seeker-friendly. This church was very orthodox. This church was very fundamental. This church was very dead. You see what I'm saying? We, we can describe churches very quickly, very easily, and we all understand what that is. So when I talk about a spiritually mature church, I'm obviously talking more about the, the personality that the church tends to reflect or how other people would talk about it. When I talk about an immature church, I'm, I'm really talking in the same way. So the text that we're going to be looking at today is Paul talking about uh, the... 
well, we're going to get to it, but Paul is going to examine that there's three types of believer. There's only three types of believer. And the believers, or I'm sorry, there's only three types of people. And the church is made up of these three types of people. So depending on what there are more of, likely that's going to take on the personality of the church. So as we look at the, the text that we're going to look at, First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, let me just briefly give some context or foundation to why Paul is talking about this. The Corinthian church was not a healthy church. It was, it was immoral. It was divisive. It, it, it was, uh, dare I say, territorial. There were people in the church that were, were dividing over who they thought their leader should be. And there were people that were complaining and they were griping and they were making a stink or a fuss to the church as Paul was away. And Paul's hearing about these things. So Paul's trying to address this church. They, they had the Corinthians had a Greek way of thinking, being Greek that they were. So they thought that the people with the best arguments were the winners of what was true. So you hear you hear the Greek thinkers and you're wondering, well, this message of Christianity seems so simple. Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. There's got to be more to it than that. And the Corinthian church, because they were struggling, were falling for this weaker, weaker message. That there must be something more intelligent. Some of you guys know, understand that. Some of you guys know people that have sickened themselves of Christianity because they think it's too simple to believe that one man dying on a cross would give me a ticket to heaven. And because to some it doesn't make sense, they never accept Christ. Paul's going to examine that section of why there's three types of people, why people think a certain way, why people talk a certain way, why people act a certain way, and how that impacts what the the church looks like. So to understand this, Maybe it's best if we just kind of take it one, one piece at a time. First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul writes, he says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Well, what is he saying? This is going to be my right on board because I don't have a right on board up here. And I hope you guys see this. So I want you to picture this circle that you're looking at as a person's life. And at the center of a person's life is a chair. It's called a throne. And so what Paul is saying is that the natural man doesn't have Christ. So where would you put Christ in this? Good. So Christ is outside of this person's life. Well, if Christ is outside this person's life, who is on the throne of the natural person's life? The person's self. So I've got to do this upside down. Self, right? So self is on the throne. So he just lost his job. He got cancer. He just had a baby. Just won the jackpot. These are all things that happen in life. But the natural man, because self is on the throne, when things go good, what does the natural man say? Hey, I must be good. I must be lucky. Things are good. Life is good. When things go bad, what does the natural man do? 
He complains, he, 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 he's angry at God, he blames other people, he's unhappy. You see, the natural man is controlled by his circumstances. And, and, and the problem is, is that, like Paul says, that the natural man, he, uh, the natural man doesn't accept the things that are the Spirit of God. Why would the natural man, what do you think the response to the Word of God is to the natural man? It's deadness to him. He doesn't understand. So if you want to be a church that brings in all the non-believers, and if you just say to yourself, well, let's just preach it until they're all saved. Do you know what you're doing? You're turning a lot of people away from the incredible word of God because you think that if you just preach at them long enough that they get saved. They don't understand the things of God. They can't understand the things of God. It's not their fault. They cannot understand spiritual things. So Paul calls these people natural, or we would call them non-believers. Natural. Okay? But Paul says there's another type of person, and that person is the spiritual man. He says in verse 15, he says, the spiritual man, the spiritual person, judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. In other words, he has a discernment. He has a spiritual discernment. But really, he doesn't care what other people think of him. Because the not the natural person isn't going to agree with what spiritual discernment or intuition he has received because he hasn't received that himself. The spiritual man doesn't care what the, the natural man thinks of him because he knows that what he's received has come from the spirit. We'll talk about more about that in a second. He says, for, so he, he quotes in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. He says, who has the mind, who, who has the... For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So what Paul is, is doing here is he's talking about the spiritual man. So to the spiritual man, if this is the throne and this is his life, where does Christ sit in the spiritual man's life? On the throne. Very good. Very good. Okay. Hard question. Where does self go? Outside. Okay, so Jerry says, self goes out here. Well, how does that work? Because there's still a body that has to figure out how to navigate things. So if self sits outside of his own self, he's figured something out that the rest of us haven't figured out. Because even Christian people have to navigate this self that we live in, right? So we have to put ourselves, not here, but where? Okay, inside the circle. Good. How about at the foot of the throne? In a position of surrender. Right? So the spiritual man, he exists within, it, within his life, but he purposely, purposely positions himself at the foot of the throne where Christ sits. And his posture sounds something that sounds like this. What is it that you want? What is it that you need? Where shall I go? What are, you, what, are you, what are you saying to me? And that is the position of the spiritual man. Well, the truth of the matter is, even the spiritual man loses his job. Even the spiritual man has cancer. 
even the spiritual man gets a promotion. And even the spiritual man can win the lottery. But to the, to the, you say, we can't have any bad. Let me ask you this. When good things happen in the spiritual man's life, what does he say? Praise the Lord. Give the glory to God. When bad things happen in the spiritual man's life, what does he say? Praise the Lord. Glory to God. You see the difference in perspective? You see that the spiritual man has a perspective that the natural man doesn't. And I have to, I have the slide, if you don't mind putting it up, that there's three components to everybody. First, there's the body. What is the body? The body is this. Okay? It's unimpressive. It's temporary. Uh, it's, it fluctuates. Uh, but we all have it. As long as, if you are here today, you have this thing. Okay? And this is the body that God gave you, like it or not. Don't blame Him. Blame yourself for some of you. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but the thing is, even in our body, we can take praise, we can praise ourselves, or we can be angry about it. It is the body that gave it. Does the body, uh, does the body have the ability to make decisions? No, the body, the body is just a body, right? There, there needs to be something in us to make, for the body to actually act. And, and when, if you go to the next one, that's the mind. See, this mind right here tells the body what to do. And the body will only do what the mind tells it to do. So, for example, I sin, why? Because I want to. That's why we sin. The mind says sin, and the body says okay. And that just is the natural trajectory of our lives. Well, the natural man, he has he has uh, a mind of his own, and he can polish it. He can he can he can be educated and think and, and be the smart guy, and he can come to his own decisions about how he wants to live his life and who he wants to be. And he can look just like the spiritual man, just by some decisions that he makes. Right on the outside, his life can look just like the spiritual man's life, right? Because he chooses to have that life, which is the seed of legalism. That there are some things that we can do, there's some things that we can make in ourselves that are moral, that if we do that, maybe people will look at us in a positive way, and that will show that we're spiritual, or spiritual, or look at it in a different way. Some of you have been taught that if you act a certain way, you're spiritual, but if you act another way, you're unspiritual. Well, all that is decided in the mind, and the mind can tell itself what it wants to be. So we can fool ourselves into what is spiritual. There's a third component here. It's the spirit. If you are a non-believer, you have a spirit. And what is its condition? It's dead. It is dead. It is a dead spirit. Okay, there is no life that can be found in that spirit. The natural man has a dead spirit. The spirit is the core of that person. It, help, it, it determines how the mind is going to think. So we talk about passion. Passion comes from the heart. When we talk about feelings. Where does feelings come from? Feelings come from the mind. And that's why as Christians it's dangerous to make all of life's decisions based on how you feel. Because it's all done up in the mind. So if you, that's when you, when we become believers or Christians, 
God takes up a dwelling place. Where? Of those three, where is his dwelling place? In the spirit. So God's, God's possession of us is at the core of our existence, right here in the heart. Okay, we call it the heart, we call it the spirit, we call it whatever makes sense to us, but it's at the core. The spirit of God abides in us. And what does he do? He teaches us all things. He teaches our minds that which is spiritual. And then our minds have to dissect all the garbage that we've received. And if, if, if it makes it through the mind, our body actually responds to God's will. But if we're in a position of surrender, we're, we're in a much better position to be able to respond to God's will. If we're not in a position of surrender, we're not going to respond to God's will. Does that make sense? So if you think about this, the Spirit of God lives in the heart. The mind, we all have one. But this is not where the spiritual work is being done. It just receives. Garbage in, garbage out. Good in, good out. But the mind is in constant operation. In the spiritual life, unfortunately for most, most people find themselves operating their spiritual life right in their mind. And they are, they are not guided by the Spirit of God in their heart. So Paul's laying out the difference between the natural man who doesn't have the Spirit and the spiritual man who does have the Spirit. Well, there's a third type of person, and Paul is going to address this, this third type of person. He says, brothers, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, brothers, uh, he says, actually, but, but I, brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are, you are still of the flesh, for there, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, you are not being merely, are you not being merely human? This third person, we're going to call the immature, we're going to call the struggling Christian. This person is struggling. And this is where it changes. Corinthian church, clue. It's a clue, Jerry. Where is Christ? Good. Good. If I had a lollipop, you'd get a lollipop right there. Christ is in the life of the struggling Christian. Who's sitting on the throne? Good. Excellent. Self sits on the throne. Life circumstances. Lose my job. Get cancer. Get a promotion, win the lottery. How does the struggling Christian process when things go good? No, we wish. Not quite. Maybe, maybe. You might say that. If things go good, yeah, things are good. I'll give credit to God. We'll go with that. They'll also maybe give themselves credit, right? Because Christ isn't on the throne. When things go bad, what does the struggling Christian say? Blame, okay? Blame. Why do you hate me? Why did you do this to me? Are you punishing me? What did I do to deserve this? It must be your fault. The struggling Christian
acts just like the natural man. Christ is in his life. The spirit is possessed by the spirit of God. The heart has been renewed, but the mind is not listening to the spirit of God. And so he processes things exactly like the natural man. The struggling Christian looks like the natural man. Let me ask you this. Of the three types of people, Who's most miserable? The struggling Christian is the most miserable. Why? Because the struggling Christian has to work through the presence of God in his life. And that prompting is continuous. And that conviction is on purpose. And thank God for his presence in his life that he keeps nagging to come back, to be restored. Paul said, Paul identifies eight characteristics of the struggling Christian in this little text. If the church is made up of a bunch of struggling Christians, by definition, it becomes a struggling church, right? If the church is only bringing people to Christ and not raising them up into maturity, it is by definition a struggling church. You may bring the masses in, but if there is no growth and maturity, it's you're just producing struggle. The problem is this. What does the struggling church look like? Looks exactly like a church of dead people, right? Because they process everything the same. They have conversations with each other. Oh, God must hate me because my life isn't going well. All I want is a job. Why can't God just give me a job? Yeah, hey, I deserve a raise. Why did God overlook me? I've been faithful. I've, I've prayed last month. I deserve something more. And they struggle. They struggle with everything. They get cancer and they say, God, why did you do this to me? Are you punishing me? And the whole process of the life of a struggling Christian is why, God, are you doing this to me? And if you, if you gather a bunch of people like that, you have now turned it into a church. And the messages are no longer about the word of God. They're about how people feel. And you're addressing behavior modification to try to change the way people are acting so that they feel like they are spiritual because all you can do is address the mind of the, of the struggling Christian. You cannot speak on spiritual things to the struggling Christian because he too cannot understand spiritual things because he is sitting at the throne of his own life. Does that make sense? So these eight characteristics that Paul points out I, I, we want to bring it up because I, I want to say, I want to I want to highlight these eight characteristics, and, and we're going to go a little bit beyond verse four to get to these eight. But you'll you'll understand why. Uh, number one, the worldly church cannot understand spiritual truth. Paul said, "I brothers couldn't address you as spiritual people." I guess I I would wonder if you're going to go to church, what do you want your pastor to preach on? Do you want him to do TED Talks or uh, motivational speeches or uh, what do you want? Why do people go to church? If it's not for the word of God, what is it for? And, and, and here's Paul saying, I can't even address you people 
as spiritual people. Because the worldly church cannot understand spiritual things. And I, I, I applaud Paul for recognizing that it wasn't even worth him wasting his time trying. The truth of the matter is, struggling people are not going to go to a church where the word of God is priority. But you cannot mature as a church if the word of God is not priority. Paul just wanted to preach Christ and Christ crucified, and that's it. He just wanted them to understand that, and they didn't. Second, the worldly church struggles because they are spiritual children, even though they are Christian. And they are Christian. Paul addresses them in the first chapter. It's very clear that the Corinthians were Christian people. There's no doubt about that. You just read the first four or five verses in the, in the book, and you'll come to the same conclusion. But if you've been a parent or if you've raised kids, how long do you accept your child to be childlike? Is it acceptable if your child acts like a child his whole life? No, it's not acceptable. We raise children. We raise them up. And it's true. For some, you raise them up and they still want to act like children. All you can do is raise them up. There's a reason why you have to be 16 to get a driver's license. None of us want to see a three-year-old driving. We just don't want to see it. Well, in the same way, guys, if the church is, is if, if God's church is his field and his harvest is the laborers, does he want unskilled labor? Or does he want a mature experienced worker to work his field. I know what I want. I don't know why he wouldn't want that. But but the truth of the matter is there will always be spiritually spiritual children in the church, a healthy church. Because there will always be reproduction happening. And so the church needs to learn not to grow to such a degree that it doesn't welcome the spiritual child. The church has to always have a platform that the spiritual children, wherever they are, just like a community, right? Wherever there's older people and younger people, and we all work together to raise the young up. And if we're really honest with ourselves, no matter how old we are, we still have some growing to do. We still have some maturing. And by God's design, it's going to be that way until we reach glory. And so there's only so long... I, I, uh, I'm reading by I'm reading a book right now, and the author of the book says that said that uh, he he gives believers three years, three years, and then he and then it, it's un, inexcusable. If you've been a Christian for longer than three years and you haven't grown up, it's inexcusable. That's his point. The problem is this: if there are no churches raising Christians up, or no Christians raising Christians up, or no mentors mentoring people up. What do we do? We become Christians and then we set people on our on their own with no guidance or no direction. We don't do that when we raise kids. We parent. And in the same way, the church needs to always be coming alongside others if we want to see them grow up. Third, the worldly church can only understand simple, basic ideas. We're all familiar with churches. 
The just speak a simple language to a simple people. And it's usually a gospel message, which is not a wrong message. But all, if, if, if you go to a church and all they want to do is preach the gospel for salvation, but they never tell you to tell the believer what to do once he's come to know Christ, then why would they stay? But if the church could teach what maturity looks like and stop focusing on immaturity always, the immature would have a standard to look at. And they would desire to live the mature life rather than the low bar of everybody walking in spiritually immature walk. Number four, the worldly church is not spiritually going or growing. I'm, I'm just curious about this. You can't answer the question because of the, the format that we're in. Why did you become a Christian? <coughs> to be saved? To feel good? To be happy? Find peace? There's 35 people, 40 people in this room. The answer is going to be different for everybody. But if I told you that the spiritually mature are the ones that understand that they were saved so that they could grow up for the sake of the next generation in the church, that person's mature. If you think that your spiritual journey is yours to keep for yourself, you are immature. You are immature. Your journey is not intended to be kept to yourself. Your journey is intended to be shared. In a sense, your life is now, when you became a Christian, your life became an open closet door that others could see what's in it. And the goal in the Christian life is to learn how to clean up that ugly closet. And we clean up that ugly closet so as not to be a distraction so that we can help other people grow, so that they can figure out how to clean up their closet. And that just makes sense. That's just the way we think. So uh, when, we, when we go back to Paul, Paul's talking to the Corinthians. He says, you guys aren't, aren't spiritually growing. You're still in the flesh. There's no difference between you and the natural man in the way you think and how you live. One, two, three, four, five. The worldly church is divisive within the church. I'm gonna, I'm gonna confess something. I have never been part of a church split. That makes me naive, possibly ignorant. But I would bet you that some of you have, and I bet you you have seen the ugliness, and the bitterness, and the destruction. The division happens. And it is my intent that by the time I, I pass and move on to the other side, I never see a church split. And I will, at least in my own power that I have, which is nothing, maybe what do they call it, command presence that a cop has, I'll stand up, I'll fight for that. If you, if you have ever caused a church to split, it's because you're immature. It's not because you're mature. The mature will never cause the church to split. 
Now that said, I, I'm going to deviate because I'm going to tell you why I came to step under Dave's authority. Dave, you made some hard decisions. Those are not the visions. Those are convictions. And you've done it at a price. And many have divided as a result of the decisions that you've made. That's not on you. You followed the conviction of your spirit, and I applaud that. And for that, you are a mature man. And I will, I will stand by a mature man any day, and I will fight for that man. And I see that. And other people might look and they might judge you and say, well, all, all that church has done is subtract. That's not what I see. I see God putting you through a season right now and preparing us for, for and leading us into the next. So there's, it's, it's no mystery to me why you keep talking about taking the hill. And I, and I, for me personally, Dave, it's easy for me to say, you just tell me when and where. And I'll go. And, and the reason is because I know you're a man who listens to the Spirit. And if that conviction has caused you turmoil, I'll take that. I'll stand with that man any day. And I think we as a church should too. All of us. Because those are the type of men and women we want to see the church in leadership. We've, we've been praying for men and women in the church like that our whole life. And some of us have unfortunately not been able to see it happen. But when it does happen, we embrace it. And we grow together and we support one another. And that's what the mature do. The mature don't divide. The Corinthian church was, was a mess because they were divided. Because there's still jealousy and strife among you. There's still people that were, were wanting what other people had. And they, were, they had contempt for one another. And, and they were arguing. And they were complaining. Well, there's three more. The worldly church does not follow Christ. Because the worldly church follows its own worldly passions. When you sit yourself on the throne, you cannot simulate the, the spiritual experience. It's impossible. When you sit on the throne of your own life, you are not spiritual. But you might say, logically, you might say, but wait a second, Jim, let's go back to the spiritual man who drew up there. Nobody stays like that. That's right. Nobody stays like that. We all sin. The measure of the mature believer is how long after that sin he chooses to retain throne of his life. Or better spoken, the measure of the mature believer is how quickly he can get himself off the throne and, and, and put Christ back where he belongs. That is the measure of maturity. And the longer you go in your life filled with envy and bitterness and strife and jealousy, the longer you go, the more your mind will get shaped by those thoughts. And eventually you will stop listening to the Spirit and you will no longer be living the spiritual life. I say that as somebody who understands, I, I can't claim to be the spiritual man. All I can do is say that I've experienced the spiritual life. And that's all I want to do for the rest of my life. 
and I want to help other people experience the spiritual life and sustain that life long enough to learn to love it too. And that's really what this journey is about. Uh, number whatever. I don't even know anymore. Uh, the worldly church does not... I said that. Instead they follow. Did I say that? The worldly church does not follow Christ? Instead, oh, there it is. No. Instead, they follow their pastor. Instead, they follow their pastor. If Dave gets a phone call tomorrow that sounds something like, why'd you let that guy preach? Okay? It's because you have idled your pastor and you worship him. And you, you've missed what he's doing. The hardest thing I believe leaders do, the, hard, the hardest task of a leader is to let go of the control that they have and dispense and disperse it to others. So if you find yourself, I don't want to ever hear that guy speak again because he really ticks me off. First of all, I already know that. It doesn't bother me. Join the parade of people but give him the credit that he's willing to, to, to share that ministry. Because that's the, that's the person who's doing all the work right now. And every word out of my mouth, he's holding. He, and he, he, you own that. Because you've given this, for just a short moment, you've given that authority away. If you find yourself following your pastor, your pastor will, will fail you. I met a man one time. And I'll tell you that that man is in this room here today. And so this man will know what I'm talking about. But every time I talk about his previous church experience, he would sob. I never could understand what his church experience was. Because all he did was cry. Finally, finally, I don't know. A year later, talking to him on a regular basis, he finally revealed to me what happened. The pastor led him to the Lord. And that pastor moved on. And suddenly his he had a vacancy in his life. And in a matter of a few words, in a matter of a few words, I watched him come to this conclusion that as believers we're not following the pastor but we follow Christ and I have watched that man grow into a spiritual giant since that day has come but it didn't feel like that when he was following a man it only felt that way when he discovered the, the freedom of following Christ in Christ alone. And it's such a great reminder to me. And I'm, I'm so thankful that I met this man and I got to experience his story. And I, and I know that his, his story isn't alone. And if he, could, if he could have been the one standing up here sharing it, there would be many that you would feel have been in the same place in life. Number whatever, seven. The worldly church does not utilize the spiritual gifts of the whole body. This actually comes out of verses 5 through 7, and it basically is saying, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, and they were just putting all the work on the pastor, and the pastor 
You know, they just expected these guys to do all the work. It's a a spiritually immature church is a church that expects the pastor to do all the work. That's just simply put. Every person in this room who knows Christ has been given a spiritual gift for for the glory of this church, for the glory of the church, for the betterment of the church. There are no spare parts in the body of Christ. If you haven't discovered what God's contribution to your to the church's your life, your contribution to the church is, discover it, take a chance, risk it, find the passion, and do what God has called you to. Because the church is only healthy when every part is actually operating. You can have the most spiritual pastor, but if the rest of us are a bunch of dead duds, what good is that? The healthiest church is one that doesn't. Can, can watch the pastor walk away for three months and two and a half months into it, somebody says, hey, where did the pastor go? That's a healthy church. Because that means he's equipped the church to handle the ministry just fine without him. Uh, the last point, the worldly church expects the pastor to do all the work. That goes along with the uh, previous the previous point. Uh, here at Life Path, as long as, as long as I'm here, I'm going to remind Dave continuously that he has no interest in moving on to that property at 83rd and Happy Valley as a one-man show. Dave doesn't seem like the kind of guy that's going to be stubborn to push push him off. I think if you tell Dave what you want to do, because it's in your heart and you're passionate about it. I have a feeling that Dave's going to say, I'd like to see that happen. So if you have a passion, if you have a desire, if you think the church could be better and you have a, you have a vision for it, I'd say just sharing that and seeing where, where that goes. And I think Mary, new to this church, immediately you have a, you have a desire to see a church that, that where communion is, is, is sacred. And it's part of this, it's a part of the body and the church by your passion has given you an opportunity to serve and lead. And that's exactly, I think, what it's no surprise that Dave said, Yeah, it's yours. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the way you've stepped up and you're a model for the rest of us. So, in, in conclusion, I think it was like a 10 minute sermon or whatever. In conclusion, churches take on personalities. I believe, I believe we're in the preparation phase to become a spiritually mature church. And I know that's going to require some hard conversations along the way. And I think we're ready for that. And I, I'm watching, and I, and I should just tell you, if you've, been at, if you've been at Life Path for any time whatsoever, first of all, I'm going to say thank you for your gracious hospitality in letting some of us new people come in. Thank you. The second thing that I'm going to say is there are going to be a lot more. So get used to it. Because I do believe God's going to bring around the people. They're going to see this through. And that's something to celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for I thank you for the people that make up this church body. I thank you for your spirit. And right now, Lord, I, I know that you are, you prompt us to basically ask 
two questions. The first question that you're putting on our hearts is which one of those three describes where we are right now? And I would ask, Lord, that you would make that clear to each person in this room where they are right now. Are they struggling? Or are they spiritual? Are they immature? Or are they mature? Be honest with them, that they can be honest with themselves. And the second question that I know that you ask is which do you want to be? Do you want to live the spiritual life? The only decision to make is in where you position yourself. So Lord, would you give those men and women the courage to take, to, to just disposition themselves from the throne? That you would sit on the throne in your rightful place and do what you, you deserve and, and be who you already are and, and what you're so capable and competent. Would you just do it in the lives? Can we start with that individual decision that each of us need to make? That the spiritual life begins with that one decision. And from that, Lord, I say thank you to those who have committed to the spiritual life and are ready to be done with the struggling journey. So we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.